welcome back to our podcast, Where Do I Know Them From? As always, my name is Alexandra. And I'm Elizabeth. And this is the podcast where we talk about the entire filmography of Saoirse Ronan, one of our favorite actresses. So, Elizabeth, do you want to start us off with some letterbox reviews for this movie? Of course. All right. Starting off with a strong, and I mean it this time, five out of five stars we have. I'm going to write a letter to Wes Anderson asking him to be the interior designer for my home. Same. We have another five-star review that says Willem Dafoe is just a little too good at playing villains for me to feel safe in a room alone with him. Willem Dafoe is my king, and anyone who says otherwise is wrong. (laughs) Yes. Then we have 0.5 stars. What's wrong with Wes Anderson? He needs therapy, TBH. I think it's important that the what's wrong with Wes Anderson has three question marks after it. That That really sells it for me. Yes. Also... (laughs) <laughs> just the juxtaposition of five stars from half a star. Clearly, we have a divisive movie on our hands this week. Yeah, a movie that a lot of people love and some people really hate. Love. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, this movie is The Grand Budapest Hotel. It is Saoirse Ronan's first movie, uh, first of two at the moment, with Wes Anderson. It came out in 2014. Wes Anderson, as he does with all of his movies, both wrote the screenplay and directed it. He also wrote the story with Hugo Guinness. It is 100 minutes long, and I think that that's an appropriate length. Sometimes I really take issue with the length of these movies, but this one felt good to me. The cast, as per usual with Wes Anderson, is freaking stacked. Oh my gosh. I'm just going to read off the names here. Ray Fine, F. Murray Abraham, Matthew Amalric, Adrian Brody, Willem Dafoe, Jeff Goldblum, Harvey Keitel, Jude Law, Bill Murray, Edward Norton, Saoirse Ronan, Jason Schwartzman, Leah Sado, Tilda Swinton, Tom Wilkinson, Owen Wilson, Tony Revolori, who was a novice in this movie, which is kind of exciting, and also Bob Balaban. The score was done by Alexander Desplat, who I love. I think he did a really good job on the score here, too. Uh, it was produced by quite a few people, Wes Anderson, Scott Rudan, Stephen Rails, Jeremy Dawson, Fox Searchlight Pictures, TSG Entertainment. Indian Paintbrush, Studio Babelsberg, and American Empirical Pictures. Robert Yeoman did the cinematography, and Barney Pilling did the editing, and once again, I think it was really well edited, and the cinematography was excellent. It was distributed by Fox Searchlight Pictures. And the plot, this is kind of a long plot for us. Normally, they're like one sentence long. This one reads, The Grand Budapest Hotel tells of a legendary concierge at a famous European hotel between the wars, World War I and World War II, presumably, although they do not specify, and his friendship with a young employee who becomes his trusted protege. The story involves the theft and recovery of a priceless Renaissance painting, the battle for an enormous family fortune, and the slow and then sudden upheavals that transformed Europe during the first half of the 20th century. Now, I don't know how you feel, but I think that's a pretty terrible plot summary, mostly in that it does not really talk about what's happening in Europe at all. Yeah, I do not feel like it really addresses, like, the tensions and themes of European history. But most importantly, it doesn't talk about the murder. (laughs) No, no. Okay, so very basically, you guys, this is a murder mystery, except that we kind of know who did it. I don't think we ever actually know who did it, but it was definitely not the accused. So it's kind of split up into three different timelines. One is in the present, vaguely, it is this one snowy day where a woman wearing brown walks up i'm going to call this the brown timeline just for that reason Mm -hmm. a woman wearing brown walks up to like a monolith to a plinth like a a bust of this man the author unnamed other than that he is played by tom wilkinson at this age she walks up she like hangs up a key from a hotel sits down and reads the book then in the same 
timeline, presumably this is the author like speaking to her through the book. We see Tom Wilkinson, the old author, also wearing brown, so still in the brown timeline, speaking directly into the camera. He's not like speaking the book. He's giving what sounds like a writing seminar. Mm-hmm. He ends on... Everything I'm about to tell you was told to me exactly as it happened. Which is bunk. Like Immediately <laughs> signals that nothing will be true about the, the following story. Then we cut to our second timeline, which I will call the orange timeline. Of course. Because um, the 70s are orange. Yeah, because the 60s and the 70s are as orange. As you might remember from the lovely bones, the 70s are yellow. <laughs> yes. So this is the timeline in which Jude Law plays the young author. Jude Law is staying at the Grand Budapest Hotel, which we assume is where this woman in brown got her hotel key from. He is staying at the Grand Budapest Hotel, which he calls like an enchanting old ruin because it's kind of like an older hotel now. It's not as taken care of as it will be in our third timeline, which we'll get to in a sec. So Jude Law encounters this man named Zero, who is at this point in his life played by F. Murray Abraham. Um, Zero is like the richest man in all Zubrovka. He owns the Grand Budapest Hotel, and he's a little bit of an enigma. And Old Zero relates his story to Jude Law, the author. While both of them are bathing (laughs) in the sauna, the spa, they decide to strike up the conversation of Zero's life, which they then continue over dinner, more importantly. Yeah. But notably, they do first meet in the bathtub. Yeah. So our brown timeline really is only at the beginning and the very end. The orange timeline does continue to crop up because they meet, right? Jude, Jude Law exists as a character, as does F. Mary Abraham. They meet in the bathtub. They meet for dinner. They, like, hang out in the lobby a couple of times. So we, like, we are hearing the story as Old Zero is relating it. Mm-hmm. And then also as a third layer, as Tom Wilkinson, the old author, is relating it to us, the reader, or us, the viewer. So Old Zero tells the young author about his his life basically his like his first experience at the grand budapest hotel and it is as young zero that he is first hired as a lobby boy into a hotel which is at this point in the vague 30s run by the hotel concierge monsieur gustave who's played by ray fine so does young zero played by tony revelori and monsieur gustave played by ray fine they are the two main characters they're basically the only characters that are on screen the entire movie mm-hmm. most of our movie is spent in this third timeline the pink timeline where mm-hmm. everything is pink pepto-bismol pink yep millennial pink <laughs> and during this timeline it, we both find out one how zero became the richest man in zubrovka which is this fake european country that they live in and we also watch Mr. Gustav, one, he is a big game hunter. That is like his big, yeah. not in not in terms of shooting animals, in terms of seducing old women. I think that his average age, they say, is like in the 70s mm-hmm. and maybe in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So the basic tension, the basic plot is that Mr. Gustav has seduced and fallen in love with this woman, Madame D, who's played by Tilda Swinton. She dies. He hears about her death, goes to the funeral. While he is there, Serge X, her butler, tells her, tells him they're reading the will right now you might want to enter this room and so as as he enters the room they start to read off the part of the will that is pertinent to him mm-hmm. which is that she has left him this renaissance painting the one that we mentioned earlier called boy with apple and can i just say boy with apple ugly yeah <laughs> respectfully respectfully to the man that painted this i'm sure it was a directorial choice by uh wes anderson to make it kind of garbage but <laughs> i would definitely donate that painting to Goodwill if I were cleaning out Tilda Swinton's house. Yes. Madame D's house. Madame D's house. Yeah. So he walks in as they, 
as they read off that Mr. Gustav is, has inherited what boy with apple, and it is this masterpiece. It's like the most valuable thing that this very, very rich woman owns. Mm-hmm. All of her children, of course, get very upset because they're evil, right? They wear black, and so they are evil. Yes, this is true. Everyone else in the room is wearing black, signaling to us that this is... <laughs> A scary space. A scary space to threaten. It's a non-safe space. Because Jeff Goldblum wasn't threatening enough right. as the lawyer. Jeff Goldblum plays their lawyer, Kovacs. He will come back later as a murder victim. Mm-hmm. A lot of people get murdered in this movie, actually. So they are immediately angry. Dimitri is her oldest son and the only relevant member of her children. He's played by Adrian Brody, who does a phenomenal job. Love Adrian Brody. Of course. He's Give so good Adrian at Adrian Brody a tiny mustache and I am there. <laughs> Yes. Um, it is important. I think I'm glad that you brought up the tiny mustache that Adrian Brody is Nazi coded. Um, yes. Def- sorry. For sure. This is set. The pink timeline is in the vague 1930s. And a lot of people are vaguely fascist. At one point, mm-hmm. Monsieur Gustave does call one character explicitly fascist. Mm-hmm. They are never identified with real countries. Yeah, Just but with, they, like, fascism. They do have pretty significant symbols connected to fascism. Yeah. For example, when Adrian Brody's character tries to, like, take over the hotel and he's trying to rebrand it, everything has two Zs. Yeah. Which, if you, like, lay over each other, is are the swastika. Or it's, like, an SS, like, ZZ yeah. is, like, the same thing. So, anyway. Their clothing looks, like, vaguely Nazi uniform. Yes. It's all, like, very clearly supposed to be the Nazis, but not actually Aside from that, which we'll come back to the theme of fascism later, I'm sure. At this point, Jeff Goldblum, the lawyer named Kovacs, reveals to everyone assembled that she has been killed by murder. Um, she, like, did not die of natural causes despite being super old. A murder most foul. <laughs> so Dimitri, probably because he wants boy with apple because he wants the money, which honestly, this is the this is perhaps the weakest motivation because why would you, why would anyone kill someone over boy with apple? If you were listening to this podcast and have not seen the movie, Please I Google encourage you to, to Google boy with apple, a fake painting, which <laughs> I, with its own Wikipedia page, with its own Wikipedia page, who they kill people over, like mm-hmm. Dimitri kills do. multiple people over this painting. But honestly, his motivation is fascism. He's yeah, you're evil, right. Alexandra. He's evil because fascism. You're right. So they, uh, he accuses Mr. Gustav of murdering her. How he justifies this to the cops, I have no idea, because Mr. Gustav was nowhere to be found. He has the clearest alibi, which is that we, the audience, were watching him. <laughs> True. Spectatorship is so important. Yeah. Anyway, Mr. Gustav then goes on the run with Zero. He is immediately captured and taken to prison, breaks out, and most of the movie is spent with him and Zero on the run, and Dimitri sending off his crony named Jopling, who is played by Willem Dafoe, my king, love him. If you're out there, hit me up. He sends Jopling out to, one, try and capture them and Boy With Apple, and also to kill people. So Jopling kills Serge X, who is the butler. He also kills Kovacs, the lawyer, and Kovacs' cat, which was so sad. He threw yeah. him right out the window. What a freaking dick, honestly. Like, <laughs> what an asshole. So much happens in this movie, but the most foul affront <laughs> is the defenestration. Are you of are you kidding me right cat. now? The defenestration. <laughs> Way to whip out a vocab word. Okay. <laughs> So oh that's basically it. Is This is a, a, a heist. It's a chase. 
some other things happen, like Zero meets Agatha, played by Saoirse Ronan. They fall in love. Yeah. She helps Serge X at the beginning of the movie before anything really has happened. He smuggles out the murder will, her Through, secret second murder will. Through the power of pastry. Through the power of pastry. The power of baked goods. Women are powerful because baked goods. It's important that that's a separate thing from how Serge smuggled the will out. He smuggled it out on the back of the painting. Right. She, she helps out there. with the paint. <laughs> with she, the power yeah. of pastry. She breaks them out of prison with the power of baked goods, yeah. She has created this murder will specifically because she felt that she might get murdered, and so she made a second will. In this will, the only change is that Monsieur Gustave inherits everything instead of just Boy With Apple, which I don't know the value of Boy With Apple, but I'm not sure how market of a change that was. So it all comes to this big head at a shootout in the Grand Budapest Hotel. Everyone has circled back around to the namesake. There's a shootout. The murder will is discovered, and... Then it all wraps up very nicely. Some of the storylines are never resolved. For example, fascism in Europe. (laughs) And also we don't know what happens to Dropling or to Dimitri or to Dimitri's evil sisters or whatever. But Gustav inherits everything. He leaves everything to Zero. Zero marries Agatha. She dies after two years, which is a weird, sad detail to include. Of the Russian grip. (laughs) Yeah. But also of communism. But also of communism, yes. It's a weirdly anti-communist movie. stupid commies (laughs) Brought the Russian grip to the Grand Budapest Hotel. It's true. So this is how we get rich zero. This is the zero that young author meets. So those are our three timelines. The brown timeline, which is vaguely the present. The orange timeline, which is vaguely the 60s. And the pink timeline, which is vaguely the 30s. So now with that color-coded plot, I will tell you a little bit about the critical response. (laughs) Honestly, this is... I've seen this movie many times before. I would have told you that it was one of my favorite movies watching it with elizabeth (laughs) known wes anderson hater (laughs) definitely known wes anderson hater yes knocked it out of my top five easily oh no i genuinely had never watched this movie critically before i had simply appreciated the pretty pictures and elizabeth was actively (laughs) anti-wes anderson vocally vocally hated him the entire movie which made me rethink it and also just watching it to tell you all about it helped me think more deeply about it so you're welcome. And also thank you. I simply, before anyone comes after me, I do recognize Wes Anderson's talent as a director. Here are my problems with him. First, he knows he's good and that pisses me off. Yeah. Second. He does. That man knows he's good. He is the Rachel Berry of, oh my God. of directors and it shows. I hate that you're right. Which is like fine. The other thing is that once you pick up on how symmetrical all the shots are, because sure, every every frame is a painting. I feel like that's not derogatory. Not derogatory criticism of yeah, this movie. The movie is beautiful. It's beautiful. However, once I notice that if I look at the top middle, like from the frame of my TV in the dead center, I can find the line in every single shot, that pisses me off, which meant that I did it for the rest of the movie. And every single time there was an establishing shot, I scoffed audibly. <laughs> resulted in the criticism can you please keep your rage to yourself from our bestie stevie so i'd just like to publicly apologize to anyone who's ever watched a wes anderson movie with me and now we can not accepted everyone besides elizabeth loves this movie it has just looks like american (laughs) gothic in every frame like every that painting is ruined for me now that i can find the line all the way down and so is wes anderson's movies anyway This movie has received critical acclaim from everyone besides Elizabeth for things like its craftsmanship, acting, cinematography, editing, costumes, makeup, production design, direction, musical score, visual screenplay, and comedy. So everything in the movie. 
Yeah. The only things that it has really received criticism for are its treatment of the subject matter, the subject matter being fascism. I would argue that that is not the subject matter at all. The subject matter is a murder mystery yeah. set in fascism. And yeah. I think that they handle that fine. It's supposed to be funny. It has also received criticism for its fragmented storytelling and for its characterization. I think that all the characters were charming and that the fragmented storyline helped. Like, we're getting three layers deep of memory loss here, so I think that it works. I thought that the characterization of everyone was, in fact, excellent. Yeah. I thought that everyone did an exceptional job. I liked that there are so many characters that parallel each other but are so different and quirky. I don't know. I just think it's... I liked the characterization. That reviewer can suck it. Yeah. I do think, though, the fragmented storytelling could be detrimental in that, like... When you and I were thinking about how to relate the plot of this movie, it is almost impossible to do because, one, not a yeah. ton actually happens. Like, they are on the run most of the movie. Mm-hmm. It starts where it ends, too, yeah. which is hard. Very and we don't remember what happened to Adrian Brody's character yeah. if something actually happens to him on screen. If that plot line is resolved, we don't remember it. Yeah. So that's probably an issue. And some of the, like... Some of the conclusions at the end, like Agatha dying after two years and Mr. Gustav dying randomly whenever were a little bit quick. They were a little bit like tying up loose ends. What do you mean he dies whenever? It is, he died, the the Nazis kill him. They kill him? <laughs> yes. What? On the train the second time, that no. fight doesn't happen. We don't see that fight happen, like finish. Oh. They cut and then old Zero is like, they took him and shot him. And then we're like, damn, Zero. Shoot. And you don't even save the hotel for him. You save the hotel for some bitch. That made a pastry, but that's fine. Bros before Hose was betrayed by Wes Anderson here. Literally. Wow. Despite yeah. the many times I have seen this movie, I guess I never thought about that okay, one. Okay, so Mr. Gustav is killed by the Nazis. <laughs> Thanks. The fake Nazis. The fake Nazis. Okay. Well, I guess my glaring oversight aside, this film has done remarkably well. It is Wes Anderson's most popular and highest grossing feature film to date. It made $172.9 million in box office revenue worldwide. It was nominated for nine awards at the 87th Academy Awards. It won four of those. It also received a lot of other praise from other award shows and just people generally. This might be our highest reviewed movie we've for seen sure. so far. On Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter has a 92%. The audience has given it an 86%. Metacritic has it at an 88 and Letterboxd has it at a 4.2. So overwhelmingly positive, despite the one half-star review we read to you and also Elizabeth. Well, to be fair, this was my favorite Wes Anderson movie I have watched. I did give it five stars, yeah. and I would watch it again. It's just something about him the man that fills me with a <laughs> uncontrollable rage. Good thing he'll never listen to this podcast. True. True. <laughs> I mean, I feel like if you're going to be that good at making movies, then take yourself seriously. Yeah, why not? <laughs> well, you can know that you're good, and it can show. Elizabeth, after that, we've already kind of gotten into our discussion. What do you want to talk about first? Oh, boy. I don't know. What do you want to talk about first? Okay, so let's talk about fascism first. I feel like they introduced the theme of fascism very early on. Yeah. Well, first of all, they flash the date being in 1930, which is enough to code fascism for me. Yeah. I <laughs> but think we're built different. Even earlier, though, than that, like, they, they tease fascism in the Brown timeline. 
right? With the uh-huh. with the author, the old author, his son or whoever that kid is who shoots him. Mm-hmm. Has like a very gray. He's wearing gray. He's okay, dressed like yeah. a little 30s child. And I think that like his color coding matches with the fascists. Like the fascists all wear gray and black. And so because he is the only other character who wears that, he kind of codes. And also he's carrying a gun and shoots his dad. So yeah. <laughs> violence, right? Yeah. I do think that this movie also in the orange timeline is anti-fascist. For sure. The fascists killed his friend. Yeah, but it's also, like, anti-communist, too. Yeah. It's definitely, like, because Zero had to give up all of his wealth. He just kept the hotel as a little connection to Agatha. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's, I don't know. Do you think that this movie is politically aligned? No, I think this movie exists to make a farce of politics. And extremism. And extremism. That's fair. Everyone kind of occupies a little middle ground. And, yeah, it's supposed to be funny before it's supposed to make any other kinds of comments, I think. After identifying such strong political commentary in (laughs) Justin and the Knights of Valor, a movie which was not supposed to be taken seriously, it feels weird to say that this is like an apolitical movie. Yeah, I don't think it's apolitical. It's definitely anti-fascist. Sure. But it's um, also anti-communist. It's just kind of there in the middle. It's yeah. Not, it's not very strong in either direction. I'm wondering how much... Because Wes Anderson based... He not he didn't base this off of anything in particular. It is credited to the work of Austrian novelist Stefan Zweig, which Wes Anderson, I guess, was reading at the time when he was writing this movie. Do you think that he meant for it to be such a strong fascist illusion? Or was it just kind of like a, this is vaguely sinister, like that Americans are coded to think that fascism looks sinister. That's why Star Wars is the way that it is. I think it's purposeful. I could be convinced that it was not purposeful if the whole scene where there are all the ZZ banners in the lobby did not exist. That's fair. I, because other than that, like Dimitri, Adrian Brody's character is not really connected to the soldiers on the train in any way. Yeah. It's just in that scene when they're like all in the room together and the fact that like Dimitri is pursuing, is using them to pursue Mr. Gustav. So I think that it's pretty purposeful because of literally the shot. Oh, also, of course, don't no one forget that <laughs> that two Z's next to each other is perfectly parallel. So it can go in the middle. Oh my God. It's excellent. It's perfect symmetrical shot man fuck that all i want all i want to do in my whole life is to break into wes anderson's house and move his post-it notes one inch to the left (laughs) i know that that would ruin that man's day and it's all i want out of life anyway purposefully nazi i think the fascists also do something really interesting with color in that in that pink storyline where we spend most of the movie they they make it more red it's more aggressive they also introduce the color black in much like heavier quantities yeah like when we revisit the Grand Budapest Hotel towards the end of the movie when we get there and it's like under fascist control it's Mm -hmm. much more red Mm -hmm. and when they first get the news that war has broken out that shot is also much more red right it's much more alert Mm -hmm. which I I just think is interesting because I love color so much (laughs) (laughs) this is a a color fiesta this is yeah Yeah. this movie was truly maybe that's why I love it so much it's just because the color is not only so present so strong but also so important yes it really it both beats you over the head with it and has some added layers if you want to dig deeper yeah before we move on from fascism I do have one important question for you which is do you think that Owen Wilson is a fascist (gasps) in this movie not in real life (laughs) I think we're supposed to think that the Owen Wilson concierge Mr. Chuck is a fascist. He's but wearing gray and he's like he in charge then. Also fills my life with light. 
<laughs> and I was so upset at this movie. And then Owen Wilson came on the screen and it changed the game, baby. You were upset until 10 minutes to the end when Owen Wilson finally arrives? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Are you kidding? Are you joking me right now? Well, it's just the I just... Bill Murray made it onto the screen well yeah, before that. I don't... Bill Murray doesn't do it for me the same way Owen Wilson does. He's just a light. He's just a beacon of hope in this truly great movie. I think if we can accuse Wes Anderson of anything other than having two symmetrical movies, it is that he made Owen Wilson a fascist. And for that, I can't forgive him. That's true. That's true. Oh, and he didn't let Jeff Goldblum be Jeff Goldblum enough. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, I think that fascism, despite being one of the themes that is like probably supposed to be most prevalent in this movie, is not one of the most interesting things about it. For sure. I am also not particularly interested in, like, much of the inner workings of the movie, like how murder or how law works in the movie, because it's just, like... I think it's supposed to be farcical. There's an... It's not necessarily magical realism, but there is an element of, like, suspension of disbelief. Like, there's a lot of parts that we're just supposed to be like, ah, it worked out, or like, oh, it's crazy that that happened. Yeah. Like, a lot of the things, like... For example, with Old Zero, he is clearly so nostalgic, and he is clearly so, like so hurting he when the young author first sees him he says that he is the first person who uh, has ever appeared to him to to be deeply and truly lonely as opposed to just being alone Mm -hmm. which is one a beautiful quote and also such a sad thing to say or to observe about someone but i think that a lot of the movie despite it being about like nostalgia for the good old days before fascism and also when hotels were good most of the things about that are not so interesting because most of them don't ever get resolved right they're just there mm-hmm. right we're just supposed to feel kind of like vaguely nostalgic vaguely like mm, friendship used to be better right when men could be close yeah in, in the way that gustav and zero were we've already talked about how it's an anti-fascist and an anti-communist movie i would like to throw in that it is also anti-capitalist yeah because like even though zero has like achieved the highest the pinnacle of capitalism which is owning your own property and the means of production to make more money off of that property yeah he is still deeply and truly lonely very sad and the hotel is not doing very well yeah also on top of that i think that the hotel is supposed to be nostalgic because it's like a different era of hotel it's not like it's not a chain it's like a space that is unique to its moment which we yeah. kind of don't see anymore so i think that a lot of the nostalgia is wrapped up in the hotel but i'm i don't know if hotels are inherently nostalgic because so many of them are holiday in <laughs> but a lot of the ones in movies aren't yeah like if we think about the shining it's giving nostalgia there too, right? Because the, the, the history is so of deeply the place... the 70s, right? The, the carpeting. Yeah, maybe yeah. the 70s are just nostalgic. Maybe they are. Or at least they're coded that way in film. Yeah. Early, how about this? Earlier you dropped the word magical realism. And the two, I guess the words magical realism. Mm-hmm. The phrase. The key, the key word. The mm-hmm. identifier. <laughs> thing. Uh, I'm wondering, do you think that this movie is magical realism? It's very whimsical. It is very whimsical. I do not think it is magical realism. It does not have no magic. any elements of magic. Yeah. Other than, like, deus ex machina. Yeah. And, like, the power of love. Yeah. Which is magical. I, I, would, not ca- I would categorize it as whimsical and as something that relies heavily on the suspension of disbelief. I think that there are elements of mythology 
in this movie. Go on. The three sisters of Adrian Brody mm, the fates, are yeah. all unnamed, sit together, and look exactly the same. I think that they are the three fates. Yeah. I have no other information. Like, I have no other thoughts about that, as I don't think that they necessarily determine anyone's fate or follow anyone that is going to die or determine who is going to die, other than that they're there when Mr. Gustav gets accused of murder. They're there when the cat is murdered. When the cat is murdered. To balance that, because I agree with you that they kind of are like a fate trio, mm-hmm. but also women come come in threes often. Mm-hmm. Dimitri is death. Mm-hmm. He's True. very tall. He's very thin. He always wears stark black. There is no other color. Mm-hmm. He walks very stooped over, and that could just be like an affect, but it also kind of spoke to me of like he's carrying a lot on his back. Mm-hmm. He is the villain, right? If there is a villain in this movie, it's Dimitri, other mm-hmm. than maybe, sure, yeah. maybe fascism broadly as a villain. Which he represents. Which he represents. But like he is the root of all the murder. We assume that he killed his mother, Madame D. He six Joplin on people, so Joplin kills a, a bunch of people. He is also the one who starts the shootout at the hotel later. When he's a representation of fascism, which was, like, a huge harbinger of death in Europe in the 30s. Yeah. With his sisters together, all four of them are very deathly. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, I definitely think that they together represent death. I think that the scene in the room where Kovacs is going to read the will Mm -hmm. is giving the Odyssey, is giving Odysseus. Mm. When he comes back and there are all those men in that Gustav is, is Odysseus? In that Gustav is kind of Odysseus. Okay. It's a weak connection, but it's just something about, like, all of these men descending into a space that he clearly feels very at home at, right? He's, like, in the servants' quarters with the people. He knows everyone that works there. He knows where, Mm -hmm. like, the whole layout of the house. He's clearly been here many, many times. Mm -hmm. And people are coming to take what is rightfully his. Except Boy With Apple is Penelope. (laughs) Okay. I mean, not really, because it doesn't really seem like he cares a lot about Boy with Apple before they decide to give it to him. I mean, he inherits the house, and also he was banging their mom, so maybe she's Penelope. That was really... I was just trying to think of connections to other Greek myth when I decided that those three ladies were the fates, and that's what I came up with. One other thing, just to kind of go back to Demetria's death, I think, and you can shoot me down on this, I think he's one of the only characters who we never see small. Like, Wes Anderson really has a thing besides four straight lines with distance shots to like make people look really small Mm -hmm. and i think like we definitely see zero and mr gustav do this we definitely see joplin do this most of the other people have been like zoomed out really far but i don't think that dimitri is at any point i don't think so so maybe just like the fact that we always see him up close you only ever see death up close fair the closest we get is definitely when he's walking down the hallway into the elevator that we have already seen Agatha walk into. Yeah, when he's, like, stalking but Agatha. that's even, like, mid-distance. Like, you're looking at him from across a room instead of from, like, way far on a tiny miniature. Yeah, and and when he's stalking Agatha, he literally walks her off, the like, the balcony, right? Like, he is stalking her almost to her death, mm-hmm. although she survives. Interesting. I don't know if I... I'm sold on any of this. I definitely like the idea, and I think it's interesting. I guess since we're kind of on the topic of genre, since it's not magical realism, do you think that Wes Anderson is his own genre? Yeah, a lot of them are heisty, yeah. heist-adjacent. Mm-hmm. They're farcical. Yeah. Farcical, but also, like, so well done that you feel like you can't laugh. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, like, it's at equal parts, like, the most beautiful movie you've ever seen and so ridiculous. And I think that part of that comes down to the acting. I, at least, loved all of the actors in this movie, and I thought that they all... I've only ever seen one other Wes Anderson movie, which maybe makes me a bad movie lover, but I think that 
in this movie particularly, everyone plays all of the roles so straight. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe why it feels like it's not supposed to be funny, even though it is objectively funny. Mm-hmm. Just so many of the things that happen in this movie are ridiculous, like Kovacs' fingers getting cut off, his mm-hmm. cat Which, getting thrown out the window is really funny. I will point out to you that they do fall down perfectly symmetrical on the ground. Oh my god. <laughs> and four of them, there's two on one half of the screen and there's two on the other half of the screen, which is not how they would fall. <laughs> Should someone's fingers actually oh get chopped God. off. And I know that that's silly, but I'm going to point it out. But yes, you're right. The defenestration of the cat, Jeff Goldblum as a, just in general, like all of these things are kind of. I think that maybe the funniest acting for me, like the most obviously funny part was just the way that Zero moves. Oh my gosh, yes. For I having never that. done a movie before, that actor was so talented mm-hmm. at just like making you laugh without saying anything. Like just the way that he carried himself or like how he would run really fast to get somewhere and then stop. It was yeah. really good. I feel like normally we really compliment Saoirse Ronan on the way that she carries herself and the, like the way that she moves in a movie. Mm-hmm. But she was not on screen enough really for for that she definitely yeah i think the way that she moved in this movie did work really well like she was definitely portraying like a curiosity about life or the world Mm -hmm. i liked the way that she moved it was kind of overshadowed by zero just because he had more screen time and he was just so excellent yeah but i do think that her bodily control is very suited for the film just because it's very restrained very Mm -hmm. wes anderson but also like almost mechanical To a point where Mm, it's, like, farcical or silly or whatever. Do you think that... We've talked a lot about the movements in this movie. What do you think of the dialogue? I think that there was a lot of dialogue Mm -hmm. and maybe too much dialogue. Mm, I love a lot of dialogue. Same, but it was just a lot of dialogue all at once. Nope. I liked it. Wouldn't change a thing. I thought it was very funny. It's... I think it helps with the pacing because, like... It kind of takes a while for an event to happen on the screen. All of the scenes are kind of long, Mm -hmm. but the dialogue is really fast-paced, and I think that that kind of balances each other nicely. There also aren't that many sets in this movie. Pretty much there's only jail, the Grand Budapest Hotel, the train, and the old lady's house. Yeah, and the mountain. And the mountain, which is the Grand Budapest Hotel. No, the other mountain, the ski. Oh, the ski mountain, Okay. Yeah, so there's not very many, like, places that this happens, so I feel like the dialogue is really helpful. I just really li- I'm not going to criticize it. I really like it. <laughs> I like a lot of dialogue. I do think that it gave the movie, like, a certain frenetic energy. Like, it made it feel mm-hmm. more chaotic, mm-hmm. which worked for it because, like, fascism was chaotic. And also so was, I guess, a murder mystery was supposed to be chaotic and fast-paced. It helped to characterize all the main players. I just feel like... Most Wes Anderson movies require actors to be very still. Not yeah. a lot of bodily movement happens in any of them. And I think that by having a lot of dialogue that's very fast-paced and it's like back and forth, because there's so much movement with the camera and there's so much movement in the dialogue, I mm-hmm. think that it balances each other nicely. I am particularly interested in what you thought about Mr. Gustave because I love Ray Fine. And in researching this movie, I learned that Ray Fine is a very instinctual actor. Like, the way that he operates is normally just, like, on instinct. He does not normally get a lot of direction. And Wes Anderson is a very, like, heavily directive. He likes to tell people exactly what he wants, and that's why all of his movies are so anal. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask, how do you feel about the character of Gustav and how Ray Fine plays that? Do we think we get him after this, or is there a lot left out? I think that I I don't get him 
in the way that, like, there's still a lot of questions I have about the character. Mm-hmm. But I also feel from the movie that that is how he's supposed to be portrayed. Yeah. Like, he's supposed to be an enigma. Yeah. Or, like, this character that we'll never fully understand because he had a whole life before Zero. He has so many connections throughout this movie. Like, he knows everyone everywhere they go. Mm-hmm. And I think that if he was played in a way where he was really transparent and we knew everything about him or he was, like, very flamboyant, then it would be a worse movie. It would also clash with all of the other characters. Yeah. I am wondering... I mean, I think that we definitely know what is most important to him, right? It it is his image and the hotel. Mm -hmm. Even when he is asked specifically and paid to do something, when the hotel is at risk, he puts that first. When she gives him a coin and says, go buy me a candle and light it in the cathedral because I think I'm going to be murdered. And he says, respectfully, no, heart. I need to take, I need to train this lobby boy instead. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, are we supposed to think that Gustav is amoral? Because all he cares about, right, is his perfume and taking care of the hotel. My man loves a skincare routine. I would describe him as self-interested. Okay. I would not describe him as amoral because he is guided by what benefits him, also the hotel. Okay. And also kind of zero. He is looking out for him. He takes a chance on him. These kinds of things. Gustav continually throughout the movie is guided kind of like one... He is a very loving person. His thesis seems to be dress well and be kind, right? Yes, and he makes all those friends in jail. He does. He makes a lot of friends in jail. And yet, he is very rude to Zero and racist to Zero in that one scene post-jail when Zero does not bring him the right perfume. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I think it's lead panache, right? He is a man on the edge, though. He has just escaped prison. That was his breaking point, you know? Like, I just feel like maybe... But being in prison and being accused of murder wasn't his breaking point? And that's funny, you know? Like, he went through prison, he escapes, and what finally makes him break is that (laughs) Zero didn't bring him the right perfume. Do you think that that scene damages their relationship? They seem to be fine afterwards. No, because it's funny. Okay. (laughs) I know that's not a good answer. I think it's very much played as he is very angry, but Zero is like... He's had a tough day. We'll get back to this later. I don't know. Maybe not cool that racism is the joke there. Yeah. But I don't think that we are supposed to think that he is racist. Or a bad person. I think we are supposed to think that he is a product of the 30s. Earlier you said that Gustav knows everyone everywhere they go. And he's definitely part of this like hotel underground network because he can call up Bob Balaban and Bill Murray and Owen Wilson and all those other concierges. So I'm wondering... Do you think that hotels in this movie, like, have a hive mind? Are are hotels a symbol? Because we normally talk a lot about symbols, and I'm kind of at a loss. There aren't a lot of really obvious ones here, like, yeah, there are windows, yeah, there are mirrors. But there's not a lot of other ho- symbols besides a hotel. So do you think that a hotel is a symbol, and if so, what does it mean? I don't think hotels are symbols. I don't think so either. I think that hotels are interesting points because... They are inherently full of foreigners. Like, they're Mm. inherently full of people that do not live there. People can live in hotels. Not the Grand Budapest Hotel. Okay. People can live in hotels. People do live in hotels for long periods of time. But what I'm saying is, like, you're not born in a hotel, usually. Yeah. Like, you are not from a hotel. It is inherently full of people who need somewhere to stay in a place that is not their place. 
accept that all of our characters, this hotel is their place. Yeah, I think Zero is almost born in this hotel. Like, he clearly has a life outside of it and routinely, like, peppers in some dialogue about his life pre-hotel. Right. But he comes into his own there. But what I'm saying is that everyone that is in a hotel always is someone that doesn't fit in in the space outside of the hotel. Yeah. And I feel like that happens in movies about hotels a lot. Okay. So I guess that hotels are examples of, like, people coming, are symbols of people coming together. Mm. symbols of finding home away from home but that feels like too weak to say that it is a symbol in the same way that like water equals rebirth flowers equal femininity like these kinds of things yeah there wasn't really any water here which is no water normally present in all of our movies (laughs) yeah it's a sad day when i don't get to say that water equals rebirth it's okay you just said it now so yeah since we're kind of at a loss about symbols the only other like really symbolic thing here was the color which we have when we told you guys about the plot, pe- mm-hmm. peppered in all the color things. Besides, though, just having the brown, orange, and pink storylines and then the secret red storyline of fascism, I think that there are other, like, really important colors in this movie. I don't think that I have any thoughts about why the three timelines are those colors other than fascism is an angry thing, and so red and black make sense for it. Mm-hmm. Maybe the pink timeline is pink because that's where Zero finds love, and pink is kind of like a loving color. Agatha is also particularly associated with pink. She's got that birthmark, that cherry birthmark on her cheek. She wears a pink nightgown. I think that maybe pink because love. Mm -hmm. Both platonic and romantic. Because he finds his friend, you know, Mr. Mm -hmm. Gustav. I think also pink because feminine, Mm, Mr. Gustav and... Agatha are both feminine characters. Okay. I think that Mr. Gustav is not necessarily queer-coded in this film, though people do call him slurs in the movie. Throughout the movie, They call him a fruit, which I guess is a slur, but is also very funny. (laughs) Because it's about boy with apple, not because calling someone a fruit is funny. But um, So, like, femininity, I think... Also because I think that that particular shade of pink, that, like, bubblegum color is very delicate. And I think that we're supposed to think that the Grand Budapest Hotel and, well, the Grand Budapest Hotel is, like, a delicacy. It's not really a naturally occurring color. So, I don't know. Now I want to ask you about the color white. Okay. The color white, sure, it is, like, the absence of color, so maybe it's the absence of character. But there are a couple of characters in this movie who are singled out with the color white because everyone else is definitely, like, tied to a color. Mm -hmm. There's Serge X, who is always pictured in all white. Mm -hmm. Agatha is given uh, a literal casket of white flowers. Mm -hmm. And Madame D has white hair. Mm -hmm. Do you think that white matters in this movie? Does Serge X die in this film? Yeah. Yeah. So it codes death. and Although Kovacs does not wear white. I guess he has, like, a white undershirt, but it's right. not, like, an overwhelming white. But it, it codes, like, innocent death. Yeah. Right? Like, Kovacs, lawyer, inherently grimy. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's involved in the whole bad, thing. Yeah. Like, Serge X was just the witness. Like, mm-hmm. he was, like... And also, like, I feel like there's... Okay, definitely with Serge X, he is a martyr. This is beaten into your head when they find him in a church mm, <laughs> wearing true. all white robes. And strangled with a rosary. Yes, and strangled with a rosary. So he is definitely, like, a religious martyr. We are supposed to see him as, like, morally good and pure. I think that is also true of Agatha. Same, yeah, and also the Countess. 
So all of them I'm are not innocent. Sure. I think the connection to the Countess is like a little bit weaker because just her yeah. hair is really white. But still, she dies kind of needlessly. She's she didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, she's just rich. She's just hanging out. Yeah, I think the only yeah besides like maybe them being pure, the only thing that I can get is that they die, and white doesn't really crop up too many other places in the movie other than that they are in a snowy field and they go sledding down a mountain. Neither of those really oh, yeah. corresponds with the characters, so I think that we can cancel out that color. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's maybe an innocence thing. Yeah. And the Countess is the least obviously related of the of the three, but definitely yeah. Agatha and Serge are innocent coated. The cat is white. It's kind of white in the this cat movie. is white? The cat isn't his cat white and, and black. It's like a gray color, right? It has like white fur with black under it. Yes. He is white. Excellent. Look at him. Wow. Wow. Yes, the cat is white. This is thrilling. I mean, very sad that the cat gets murked, but... But the cat also innocent. The also cat like... also innocent. He's a little bit... He has, like, very, like, dark fur around his ears, but that's just because he's, you know, he's around Jeff Goldblum's Yeah, corruption. he's being corrupted by that lawyer, yeah. man. <laughs> so I think that the cat is another excellent point about why white equals innocence and death in this movie. I don't know. We, I mean, we could code Kovacs, but just, I can forgive him for being a lawyer. Um, when we were watching this movie, you commented to me, why does he look like Colonel Sanders? He does and look like Colonel Sanders. Colonel Sanders is, I mean, when I think of him, I think of like the white suit, right? He does so wear all Kovacs white. does also wear white in the movie and he also dies. He and the Countess are the least white of the characters. They get the least of that color. Mm-hmm. So maybe they're the most, <laughs> the, the most connected to the crime. Yeah. But yeah, I think I like that read of white. Yeah. Okay. How do we feel about the movie overall? You said you gave it five stars. I also gave it five stars. I like this movie a lot. I like it. Even though it made me so mad to watch, (laughs) I thought that it was so pretty. Other Wes Anderson movies that I have watched, I have not cared at all about the story. Yeah. And so his silly little beautiful painting shots (laughs) just just made me mad. And I was like, this is boring now that I've seen 50 frames that are all set up exactly the same way, which is straight down the middle square. Because this one was so, like, interesting to watch. The story was good. Yeah, it was, I was engaging. Hooked. Yeah, I liked all of the characters. I thought, I, I really liked this movie. It's one of my favorites. I think that Saoirse Ronan does a good job. Although she is not, like, a main character by any stretch, I would give her a... Honestly, just for the way that she is shot, I would give her a five. I think that <laughs> in terms of what she actually contributed to the movie, she was mm-hmm. not on screen enough to get a five. So maybe, like, a 4.5. I think I'm still... Only gonna give her a four. I think it's hard to judge her performance in this movie because she's not really on the screen very much. Mm-hmm. The scene where I think she does the most acting is probably when she's hiding Zero in her room and when she's on the elevator with Adrian Brody. Yeah. Both of those scenes very good. Yeah. But I just feel like I can't give her five out of five because I haven't seen like her best performance in this movie, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you guys yeah. so much for, for playing along with us through this very long episode about mm-hmm. a very interesting movie. Tune back in next week for our next movie, which is our first venture into 2015. <laughs>